0: Hello and welcome to Pillar Talk, the podcast published by the University of Queensland Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society, bringing you conversations about the three pillars of the humanities. In this episode, Will and Ollie chat with UQ's very own Dr John Quicken. John is a bit of a favourite among us UQ PPE students. He's one of Australia's most prolific academic economists, an avid blogger and a common contributor to public debate and he's not scared to share his hot takes on topical issues. John takes the third year PPE course, PPS3101, where he draws in his experience as a former member of the Australian Climate Change Authority to deliver a pretty unique course, which is focused on the economic and political dimensions of climate change. In this conversation, John talks about climate policy at the 2022 federal election, as well as Australia's response to COVID-19, the rising cost of living, how to do economic reasoning, how to lie with statistics, and much more. For more information about John, or the content covered in this podcast, check out the episode description, where I've left a link to his blog, and also to his 2019 book, Economics in Two Lessons. Why markets work so well, and why they can fail so badly.
1: We're here today with um, John Quiggin, who some of you will know from teaching the course PPES uh, 3101, and obviously... um... A writer of many books and articles and whatnot. I'll just go to John to give himself a quick introduction for those who might not know him. So, um, I've been a professor here for
2: 20 years now, uh, mostly uh, on Australian Research Council fellowships of various kinds. Uh, and um, more recently, I've got back into teaching with uh, PBS uh, and um, been involved in lots of different things. Uh, uh, most notable official appointment was as a member of the Climate Change Authority between 2012 and
1: 2017. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of starting off on that topic specifically then, um, with climate change, sort of we'll federal election coming up. So when it's um, when this podcast comes out, it might be, have been a, a, an event in the past. But what have you made of kind of the major parties or even some of the minor parties, kind of? climate change policies um, going into this. Are they enough? Is it sufficient? Well, so,
2: so the, I mean, the major parties who have fought this out for many years have essentially decided to bury the hatchet on the issue. Um, they both agreed on a 2050 net zero target, although of course uh, on the coalition side various people are, are trying to undermine that, uh, and they both agreed to rule out nearly all the policies that might help to get us to 2050 net zero. So. Um, uh, carbon taxes, uh, fuel efficiency targets for electric vehicles, and so forth. So what we have is, uh, on the conservative side, uh, just a hope that technology will do the job for us. I mean, the, it's phrased as if the, the government's policies will bring about this technology, but but that's a nonsense idea because these are, are global uh, global developments. There's no way that what Australia does. Uh, in research and development is going to drastically change the price of solar power or produce a workable method of carbon capture and storage or so forth. Mm. Indeed, the government makes this kind of point when they talk about how how little our share of emissions is. That's also true of our share of technological development. We can Mm. do our bit, but we can't really really do more than hope that that technology will get us there. And, yeah, in some respects it has. Labor has a... Kind of rig policy, which it took over. The coalition proposed this baseline and credit scheme, uh, or it was proposed under the Morrison government. Eventually killed off by backbench resistance. Labor's trying to revive it as a as a way of providing at least some price incentives for uh, emissions reductions, um, while far as possible away from the idea uh, that there's a price or a tax or anything uh, involved there, and both sides uh, are essentially committed to uh, doing nothing to restrict uh, exports of coal and gas. So, uh, if, if those change, um, if those change, it will be uh, as a result of global developments rather than of any action taken by either of the major parties. Uh, then, of course, uh, so there's really, yeah. Uh, very little to choose between the two in terms of, of rhetoric. We'd assume that if Labor gets in, uh, that various discretionary policies will be more pro-renewables and less pro-coal than uh, than if, if the coalitions returned. And of course, it's quite possible if the coalitions returned that they might decide the 2015 net zero target wasn't such a good idea after all. Uh, once they've once they've fended off the election, but so that's the major parties, which of course account for about two thirds of, of uh, popular support. Uh, the the rest is divided essentially on one side between the Greens and the so-called teal independents, who uh, who who want action consistent with the goals of the Paris Paris Agreement, uh, and then the, the various right wing groups uh, who essentially yeah uh, you know, largely engaging in more wishful thinking that somehow we could revive, for example, coal-fired power and mm-hmm. and so forth, so really, of these only only the greens and climate independents have a serious policy offering uh, in the event that there 's a minority government uh, of course, both Morris and Albanese have promised that under no circumstances will they uh, do a deal but uh mm-hmm. Uh, that promise is made by the major parties before every election, and should they, should they the opportunity they need it, well, uh, no, given no, the necessity, no. uh, yeah. If if you try, if you, I mean, if you try and debate this and say, so you actually mean that if you can't get this more of the, the Greens and independents, you'll call a, you'll call a fresh election. That's how oh, we know we actually mean we'll get what we want without making a deal. Uh, yeah. Or yeah, I mean, the simplest version mm-hmm. of this is. Yeah, you know, we don't plan to. Have, we plan to have a majority, so we're not going to think about what happens. So these these kinds of off claims are, are made. We'll have to see you know, what the outcome is when the
1: uh, uh, when the election
2: results come in.
1: Looking at something the other day, uh, say Volkswagen, kind of um, they're looking at their kind of electric vehicles market. Yeah. They're saying they're not taking any new orders now um, for about a year because they've sold sold out and they have mm. such a backlog that their yeah. factories. Because the EV demand has been so high yeah. in Europe and to a lesser extent in America, we come to Australia. It's not really the electric vehicles demand is still very kind of a novel thing. I'm, I'm sure it's picking up, but no way to the same extent of places like Europe. Yeah. Is that? Although it's a kind of a, maybe a microcosm of kind of climate things and issues in general, but is the policy driving that, or um, generally why there's been such dis- disparity in uptake? Well, if well I kind so, of, so, so I mean, policy drives
2: in the sense that, for example, Australia has no uh, fuel efficiency target, which affects both the fuel efficiency vehicles. But an easy way of making a target like that is to add electric vehicles to fleet, So Australia is uh, pretty much unique in that respect. Um, Relatively expensive electricity, uh, due yeah, essentially to the failure of the national electricity market. Um, those uh, and relatively cheap petrol, compared to most places other than the US. Uh, so those things, um, those things do a, uh, those things sort of explain things significantly from the um, uh, yeah from a straightforward market point of view. Uh, what we see is that even though we don't have a domestic manufacturing industry anymore, the car uh, dealer industry is is very hostile to electric vehicles uh, mm. uh, for a bunch of reasons their uh, their uh, sale their their business model really relies pretty heavily on post sales servicing and electric vehicles don't need don't don't need that on the other hand, they have a significantly higher upfront price uh, which is makes selling them harder and um, and or Although in cost terms, uh, electric vehicles are, are, are clearly cheaper in terms of long-run, long, run, um, long uh, in t- terms of lifetime operation. Uh, that there's some sacrifice in in performance relative to a, uh, a relative in terms of things like short-term acceleration relative mm-hmm. to an IC vehicle, and so uh, so in terms of the, in terms of the selling experience, uh, it's much more difficult to make a profitable business out of selling something like an electric car. You say, here it is, this is what it costs. Um, And uh, you save a heap of money over its life compared to the
3: kinds of things that can be done
0: uh,
2: for an ICE
3: vehicle. Um, So one of the dominant narratives kind of driving this sentiment against climate action is the economic costs associated with it. What's the difference between... Um, say the economic models that support climate action and those economic models that don't support. So why, why do we see this such divergence in narratives around um, the economics of climate change? Well, I
2: mean, I mean the, the stuff that I guess the government has quoted in previous elections, the issue's been buried, is essentially bogus. Um, hmm. uh, so so uh, very very likely what, what we see is relatively small numbers being boosted up into very large numbers by presentational tricks, and this has been this has been the case for a long time. If we look at what's actually involved um undoubtedly we're transitioning in electricity away from coal towards uh uh towards uh, solar pV and wind uh as with electric vehicles, you have a an upfront cost that we have to scrap uh scrap existing plant uh and invest in new plant that will have cheaper costs in the long run. Uh, partly a question of who bears that cost, and partly a question of what the uh, what the e- what the economics yeah how much how much is involved. But um, uh, what we're seeing, indeed, though, is is uh, uh, from the current government, which hopefully might change, uh, active resistance to to measures that, that the operators, you know, the generators themselves, see as, as being in their interest actively trying to keep coal fired power alive for essentially cultural politics types of reasons bearing in mind, even the employment story is really about uh, coal exports, not yet you know, there's very little employment generated by uh, coal fired electricity yeah.
3: what, what specific um, bogus claims do um, people more in the but people more against climate well, change. well right? I mean one one
2: issue is is one issue
3: is how you present
2: how you present numbers and so this has been going on uh, my former colleague Brian Fisher is the master of this kind of thing you you can you can i uh, do if you if you're looking at the question what will be the what will be the cost of a tra- of an electric of a transition to uh, uh, renewable energy for example uh one way to do it is to look at how much this would add to a weekly power bill, and the answer is, yeah, it can be measured in terms of cups of coffee. Uh, alternatively, you can take the present value of the total amount over to 2050, uh, divide that by the number of people in the population, multiply it by four, and say every Australian household will be spending $50,000 um, right. <laughs> to do this. And um, uh, I haven't got the numbers on the top of my head, but a quite small weekly amount translates into a present value of fifty thousand dollars, and so then the question is, well, what what amount should yeah what's what's a neutral way of of looking at this? I, I would say a percentage ch- a percentage change in uh, percentage cost relative to annual income is probably the most neutral, and we're talking perhaps. We were talking one or two percent. It's probably less than that now because of the improvements in in um, uh, the improvements in in the relative relative cost performance of solid lithium wind.
3: So when we hear like these specific numbers, like it'll cost you X Y Z, usually they're bogus. Claims, uh, would you say?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two two bogus in two ways. One is that the estimates have typically been tweaked. Uh, yeah, I mean not by everybody. So we, I mean there are people attempting to do it right, but certain large numbers, the estimates have been tweaked to get the largest possible value. But then the, then the but yeah, a lot of the crucial tricks are really presentational. Mm-hmm. That's as I say, yeah, um, well at two percent interest, yeah, a thousand. I can do this one in my head. At two percent interest, a thousand dollars a year is, is fifty thousand has a present value of fifty thousand, and that's twenty bucks a week. So. So you know, twenty bucks a week is non-zero, but it's, it's If you say you might you might have to spend another twenty dollars a week, it's a lot different from saying you might have to come up with well the fifty thousand. I can now multiply that by four for four people for a
1: household and get yeah a hundred thousand dollars or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. There's what are you working about? So a lot of the climate issues, obviously, I and mean, where the politics comes from to do it is about people's willingness to kind of adapt or say pay those those kinds of costs. I mean, you say an issue kind of mirrored obviously Russia goes in into mm. Ukraine, um, the oil price um, surges, and the petrol price rises. so the idea there that say it might have say it was like a proxy almost mirroring mirroring yeah. an, um say a, a tax on an increase yes. in tax on a fossil fuel product yeah. although not coming yes. about in that way and the first thing that was uh, reached for was a reduction in the fuel excise to uh, and talks about cost of living pressures yes. so the idea that what does that say about a willingness for people to actually adapt to carbon, say, taxes or schemes that actually raid, will raise their cost of living in that manner? It well, it's hard to say in the sense of, I mean, this was almost a uniquely Australian response. So,
2: yeah, Europeans who are directly affected have not done much mm-hmm. in this way. They've more or less uh, said, at least as far as the war in Ukraine goes, we, we're going to suck it up. Um, they, of course, tried to do things more... They've tried to do things uh, in a gradual kind of way, but clearly, so far, at each occasion, when the when the issue has been, well, should we pay more for fuel X, uh, or should we should we um, should we instead capitulate to the Russians? The answer has been, yeah, with first with coal, then then with oil, and presumably in the medium term with gas. Okay, we're just going to have to pay more for this and make do with less of it. Uh, but trying to do it, again. Yeah, try i mean so there's a trying to get a path which isn't just isn't hugely disruptive mm-hmm. uh but there hasn't been a significant attempt to offset those costs now of mm-hmm. course it happens a that of course yeah Ukraine isn't nearly as front of mind for us as it is for people mm-hmm. in europe uh, but also that this is coming in the lead up to an election at a time when uh cost of living uh, which is is has been framed as as a um, as a major issue, a central issue for the parties. So, um, so that sort of, um, so it's hard. I think it's hard to draw, uh, hard to draw a huge amount of of evidence from, uh, uh, yeah, very strong conclusions from um, uh, from this particular episode. What we can see um, going back over the Australian uh, over the Australian experience has been that. Uh, uh, at the state level at least policies which have encouraged renewables have been politically sustainable against attacks that say you're raising the cost of electricity. On the other hand, at the federal level things have been mm. things have been very different so it's very difficult really to make an overall assessment of, of what's going on there. Okay.
3: so when you look at say William Nordhouse's models of when we should act on climate change, he kind of, um, waits. He says we should wait until it hits, I think, four, three, uh, you um, yeah. correct me on this, but on the upper bound, whereas people like the, um, doing a stern review, um, put it at a much lower, um, degree rise. And one of the big factors determining what we should do in the Nord house or the stern review context is, Discount rates. Yeah. So, what should the discount rate be for these models?
2: Well, good question. Uh, almost certainly negative. So, it's so not uh, If we look, yeah, we've just we've just been discussing this in the context of monetary policy. That it's now generally recognised that the uh, that the long run rate of interest, long run real rate of interest, uh, is going to be zero or, or, or negative. So, the issue. The issue in Nordhaus is he's got, he's not looking at the rate of interest on debt, but on a rate of interest on equity. it's um, not at all clear. Uh, not at all clear why you would pay that, why you would take that into account in uh, evaluating climate change. The other feature of Nordhaus is that there's essentially no value on species extinction, and so so Nordhouse's model you can wipe out most of the species other than humans and things humans eat, um, and and it would barely
3: appear in the accounts. Mm. So. Would you say there's quite a lot of there's a lot more ethical and political considerations that go into these models than um, what people would otherwise think? Well, well, the the species extinction one
2: is certainly is certainly ethical, and I mean, I think um, yeah, you know, I mean, my take is although obviously we're having bushfires and floods and things of that kind, overall, if we stick to two degrees of warming, the effects on yeah you know, the effects on humans that we normally think about. Will be significant, but not catastrophic. But on the other hand, we will certainly lose the Great Barrier Reef, lots and lots of, of habitats. If we get to three degrees, you know, we we'll radically transform nearly all ecosystems. Um, so, yeah, my looking at the evidence, we could, we, yeah, it would be once you get once you get the discounting right, it's still a good idea. would still a good idea, just from a human point of view, to hold warming below three degrees. But say the difference between two and one point five is. Primarily to do, I think, you know, with, with with the effects on the natural environment rather than, yeah. rather than the um, rather yeah. than direct effects on humans. But yeah, I mean, the discounting issue is one which essentially has been going on for a long time in one form or another, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, yeah in my view just it's one yeah. where uh, Nordhaus and everybody who uses the equity rate has got it wrong, mm. uh, and yeah, and that's really if you go back to Stern and Klein, yeah. If you say we should be using the using the rate of interest, the, the rate of interest on riskless debt as our as our proxy, which seems right, then you get you get answers
3: that uh, give you much earlier action. So it's correct to say that the negative discount rate that you suggest that we should use considers also the environmental destruction.
2: Uh, no, I oh do no, I'm now I'm now making the point a separate point, which is when Stern was writing, you could take it that the real rate of interest. The real rate of interest out there in the market was one percent. That if governments want to borrow money, they have to pay a real return of one uh, percent. But uh, and that was based on a long, a long, a long period of evidence, which broadly speaking was still consistent with the idea that that that's a constant. That it is one, it's fluctuated about. It went up, went down into negative territory in the 1970s with inflation, went up again. But you could take it that these these were one of the long term constants. The view now is, no, on the contrary, that rate of interest out there in the market, unrelated to climate change, has been falling steadily for the past thirty years, and is now negative. And so, um, so that is the view that governments can expect to borrow quite significant sums of money at zero or negative rates indefinitely in the future, and therefore. Uh, therefore, that's yeah. Therefore, that's the rate we should use to
1: evaluate public investments, including investments in climate change. Okay, gotcha. Uh, changing tack, tack a little, say for yeah. um, yeah. time. Um, you mentioned there talking about governments uh, negative kind of interest rates yeah. and and zero bounds and whatnot. Um, it, the idea that say governments can borrow now large sums of money yeah. at zero or quite negative interest rates is that something that you see as to be like a a, a good thing, a bad thing, or, or well kind of I a mean, mix of the two the idea that governments can that is actually available to them
2: well i mean yeah, I and mean, we have to first look at, at causation and the answer <laughs> <that. coughs> oh, me. the reason that's happening is because um uh save, you know, the available pool of savings exceeds private investment demand and most of that most of that is due to falling investment demand rather there was a lot of talk about savings earlier this century but most most of it is that Private investment demand has fallen a lot, um, so that um, uh, that is in itself not you know, presumably not a good thing because it means the opportunities for private, profitable private investment aren't there. Mm. Uh, but it does create a lot more room for the kind of in, for investments of the kind that the the public sector does. Mm. Uh, so from the point of view of you know, if you are uh, interested in uh, in having more. Uh, more investment in the environment in health and education and so forth, and less interested in in uh, having uh, more investments in producing material goods that that's sold in the market then it comes out as a good thing, and one version of it is you know, that we already have enough of those things, and that that's been reflected in some sense in the uh, in the in the fact that in in the fact that there isn't really much
3: new investment in those things. So, why are we seeing such a lack of private investment? Development?
2: Well, so, I mean, there's a bunch of, yeah, you know, I think there are a bunch of different versions of, of the story. So, one is so called secular stagnation, just saying the rate of technical progress has has fallen a lot, and it's really technological progress, it's really investments in things that, that produce technological progress that are. Uh, uh, that yeah, where that absorb lots and lots of capital in the modern economy, and if there isn't any, te- if there aren't any such opportunities, then uh, then that's a problem. Uh, I guess I think all of that is problematic because all of the action in the economy, including all the technological progress, is now in the information sector, and uh, really this doesn't fit the kind of model that we we like to think about with capital investment or with goods and services. So if we look at if we look at the big firms in this sector, they're all relying in some sense on uh, what's politely in intellectual property, uh, monopoly power over information. I mean, Google does you know, which is uh, the archetype example, doesn't produce anything at all. I mean, it, it doesn't, um, uh, It all it does is provide an index to information supplied by other people and attach ads to it. And there's no obvious reason why, uh, no obvious reason why, why uh, the service, while well, the value of the service supplied by Google, what uh, it, well, it should be any relationship to the amount of money that Google can get from advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it could be a lot less. It could be a lot more. Um, we don't, we don't know. What we do know is that uh, Google doesn't spend very much. Um, you know, it has a bunch of of server farms. People have made a big noise about that for a while, but there really isn't much to it in terms of actual capital or in terms of energy demand. It does a bit of research and development, but really, I mean, the search engine hasn't changed that much. Yet. It was, in many respects, better 20 years ago than it is now uh, because less tied to advertising. So there's, you know, Google just sits there and collects the rent. It has a little bit of competition around the fringes. But not really. Uh, but not really, uh, but the internet is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the internet is, yeah, so, we get, so the question is are we getting public good value from the internet that's very difficult to tell uh, and similarly if you look at the if you look at the other big tech tech companies they all have or are sitting on monopolies that they built up mm. quite quite a while ago Microsoft you know got Windows and mm. the Office Suite and all that kind of stuff and again on the face of it that hasn't changed very much mm. um, Apple has Apple has Apple it, it, it has its products mm. uh, which you know it's 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 the closest to the, it's the closest to that model in the sense it actually does make stuff and sell it and and invests a fair bit of money in improving it but but it's still really, yeah mm. still crucial that it owns it has a whole bunch of locked in users and things like that Amazon has Amazon Web Services and stuff like and these things so all these people are collecting rents from platforms in ways that aren't closer around right to investment mm. and so you can say and so the question of whether whether we actually have technological stagnation, or whether it's whether we now have technical progress that's uncoupled from capital investment—that's, uh, I suppose, the issue I want to come back to. Uh, it's hard to tell. Hard to tell whether, we're, um, whether we whether we actually have technological stagnation or not, because we don't have any good measures of output. And the Colin Clark lecture recently from uh, Eric Bynhoven was was about that very topic, and indeed I gave a lecture, on another Colin Clark lecture on the same topic, Uh, we're really, really very hard to say what's going on in
1: this information economy. Hmm. So, kind of on on that point you mentioned about these kind of tech giants, so we've got Google that essentially collect a lot of rent by not doing a whole lot of work or requiring Hmm. a lot of capital investment, Meta, so would be another one that does that, say. Unless I'm very much mistaken, I think Instagram was a kind of a branch, only has a few yeah. hundred employees, but yeah. is such a huge and profitable mm. company. So you've got this situation: we've got a private, um, uh, a business making a large kind of rent mm. in that sense, generally associated with those big tech platforms. Is there an appropriate policy response to then come in and, and oh, do that? Or, or, it, yeah. No, I mean, or or it, is it yeah. just kind of something we have to live with because that's the, the nature of how it is? Or well, it's it's a. I mean, I think. I mean, there's but there's first of
2: course a bunch of difficult questions to do with the fact that there's information and all the issues about false information and this kind of thing is, is one set of, is is a one set of problems which economics doesn't have a huge amount to tell us. Um, another question though is is uh, think of information more neutrally, it's it's a public good. It's not at all obvious that we're getting the optimal quantity of it. So so there's uh so in that sense, uh room for public investment in generating information, making it more publicly available. The kind of stuff that in a sense you know the education and research sectors have always done. Um with low interest rates, the case for doing a lot more of it becomes stronger. Um as I say, given that, uh given that what we're generating from you know, the Mattes and Googles is high-profile stuff that attracts eyeballs to ads, which isn't very much related to uh, very close related usefulness. And of course, yeah, we also have uh, also have questions like, you know, what should happen to things like public broadcasting and public news and so forth. All of this tied up, as I say, with the the difficult issues of of uh, truth and falsehood in news which which we can't easily, but it certainly doesn't map very well to uh, what kind of things would will lead people to click on ads mm.
3: do you think that uh these monopolistic markets have formed as a result of the connection between private and government, or do you think it's mainly? the outcome of market forces.
2: Well, it's, it's essentially network effects. I mean, everybody, yeah, I'm on Facebook because everybody else is on Facebook. <laughs> it's um, return of e-content 1010 pretty much yeah, with the network. Yeah, economy. economies of scale, scale yeah. I um, and And I mean, uh, I mean it, it's worth yeah putting in some, I mean, to some extent in defence, when you look at, when you look at Facebook's revenue per user, it's very, very, and compared to the time value mm. of Time that people spend on Facebook is a very small amount. So, um, yeah, you know, if I weren't on Facebook, you know, I could be, you know, pumping gas in the spare time, pumping petrol, <laughs> making, and even at that rate, oh, I would still be. Yeah, you know, the time I spend on Facebook is is quite, uh, quite costly compared to um, compared to any kind of any kind of employment value of time. Mm. Uh, and so, so, so the question, so the kind, of, so that sort of. Yeah, so so there is this network effect and of course it remains to be seen how how durable that is. So so Facebook obviously uh has run into a sort of demographic uh situation where, you know, the older you, you know, it was originally after all for <coughs> college students back in the day. Well I suppose those college students are middle aged now and and yeah and and then there are whole, there are other other possible um uh other possible competitors. The other the other uh, other point though is that this coincided with a period of very weak antitrust so that Facebook was able mm-hmm. yeah so that in principle Instagram ought to have been a competitor for Facebook and said Facebook got to buy it. And mm-hmm. so so we've had yeah so so as well as network effects we've also had the impact of very relaxed attitude towards monopoly which are now being questioned. So I think if if we were if we had the policies of Policy views of today. There's no way Facebook would own Instagram or Google would own YouTube. There's um, WhatsApp as well. There as well. Yeah. So um, so so that kind of so so that so so the degree of monopolisation has does reflect uh, yeah the high point of of a high point of the Chicago Revolution in antitrust,
3: which said monopoly isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? Um, more competition among private companies providing this type of um, services um, is this, is a better solution to say more government intervention. Well, I mean, I think, as I
2: kind of indicated, more competition would be a good thing. But the guts of it is still network effects. And, I mean, we might have we might have a few more, but uh, the nature of the nature of the story is we're not going to have, um, for example, more than a few. Computer operating systems, because the more users there are, mm. uh, uh, the more users there are, the, the better. And yeah, I mean, that's that's something um, that's, uh, and we're not going to have vast numbers of social networks mm. because because people want a social network that other people are on, mm. and you, I mean, you can mm. slice it up in various ways. So so competition is all well and good, but it isn't like to change much. Mm. And then I think um, then I think yeah, certainly the case for. The case for a concerted public attempt to m- give everybody access to information and make make um, high quality information more readily available. Uh, I think there's a very strong case for that. The difficulty is that large large elements essentially are difficult to handle. Large elements are, the ge- are difficult to handle because of the politics. So, mm-hmm. but we could certainly have a lot more public information and a lot more of of the kind that you know, universities generate and. Uh, the so-called glam sector galleries libraries and so forth uh, they've been handed that job as an unfunded mandate but we could have much better access to much better access to all sorts of cultural material on the internet with relatively modest investments
1: yeah um just changing tax again for uh probably the last time essentially before we started this podcast you've done a lot of work kind of looking at the economics of the pandemic so um kind of I would touch wood safe to say we're kind of out of the, the worst effects of, of that now at least from a health perspective um, so look at looking at the pandemic now uh, kind of not not quite a historical event but hopefully close to it do you think there? What's kind of the major learnings from kind of a policy response to this kind of mm, yeah. economic shock? Well, I don't yeah. don't buy the story.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I mean, for Australia, we are clearly far worse than we've ever been. I mean, that more people will die today in all mm. probability than died in all of twenty, yeah, mm. in all of twenty twenty one. I mean, it could be certainly in Queensland. That I'm sure that's true. Um, uh, so we've essentially given up mm. for a bunch of. Uh, uh, partly the virus was smarter than we were, and partly our policymakers got stupid but um, uh, so so I, so but we certainly have a band, yeah, we certainly have a band in the policy, so we can now look back and say uh, yeah. we can certainly look back and say um, what we've learned well, I think yeah, we've learned uh, learned again that the Keynesian way of understanding the world is pretty much right uh, that um uh, that if you're faced with a big, a big shock, and you run a large budget, large, run a large expansion in fiscal policy, it will indeed expand the economy if it's large enough. It will result in inflation. Uh, all of this was pretty much you know, the view of uh, the view of the Phillips curve as of you know, 1960 or so. Uh, and I mean, what well, we yeah, so so that model, as opposed, for example, to rational expectations and new classical models, which essentially predict that fiscal policy would have no effect, uh, yet yeah, we've learned that basically that Keynesian way of understanding the world is is correct, um, and in the short run there is a trade-off between uh, between inflation mm. and, and unemployment, just as Keynesian models suggest, and probably I mean we haven't you know, we have yet to see, I guess. Um, what happens on the way while way down, where where the inflation gets it gets wound down or not, um, so that's that's uh, one part of the story. Yeah, we, we now and so and also we can see, um, broadly speaking, that uh, the rate yeah the the rate of infl- the rate of unemployment at which inflation starts to rise is significantly lower than people than than was thought, uh, but. Non, but also significantly above zero and and higher than sometimes it was if you go back to the mid twentieth century mm-hmm. you know we managed two percent unemployment fairly comfortably now it looks like anything below you know three and a half say we start to see some yeah, right, uh, start right, right. to it see some increase it. in inflation um partly i mean i mean the u s seems to have yeah, the u s is is of course a very important case, but seems to have big has have a bunch of separate problems, perhaps uh, that see, see see this going. I suppose I'll just um, observe, yeah, that um, cost of living is a very bad way of thinking about these things, since it's really you know, since no one yeah you know, really what people care about is real wages, and so what we've seen is um, varying moves. So so. Uh, broadly speaking, in Australia, uh, we've said declining real wages. That's certainly uh, yeah, part, the most convincing part to me of Albanese's policy pitch. Uh, but the question, yeah, the question of well, why aren't yeah, so so an important question is well, why aren't wages rising more than they have, given the presence of labour shortages, and what will happen? Yeah, will yeah, can, yeah, can can real wages recover uh, even as prior, even as inflation is is perhaps there's the current inflationary surge passes. Okay. So
3: how much of an effect do you think Albanese's policies would have on the real wage?
2: Good question. I mean, so so as announced, hardly any. So we've got, yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, sorry, sorry. I mean, he said, I mean, if you look at the announced policy, they've announced they'll support a um, <laughs> an increase for aged care workers, which is a tiny proportion of the workforce. Some improvements for gig workers, which is another tiny proportion of the workforce, and a generally sympathetic attitude towards gender inequity, which is hard to say. You I mean, of course, we've had formal equal pay for a long time, and so it's hard to say exactly what's involved in that. On the other hand, you would expect, and then, not, and then, most of the measure, most of the structural changes that might reverse the policies of previous governments. Uh, have been have been rejected so so there's no appetite for for example going back to industry wide bargaining or or other measures that would actually increase wages mm. um, and um and if we look at the public sector uh, no obvious appetite to say um, uh, we recognise that way, that wages are too low and the cost of living is too high, and so we're going to support an across the board increase in public sector wages in the Commonwealth. Mm. Um, as far as 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 can be determined as as an employer the government's going to continue pretty much as it has, as an ordinary employer does, trying to hold down its employees wages as as much as possible Mm. Uh, where that will change again this is the kind of thing which is is much more difficult to assess one version of the story is all of this is don't scare the horses stuff, once they're in things will be different, that's being said both by more optimistic Labour supporters and by more pessimistic LNP supporters, mm. uh, an alternative is yeah, is that they'll do what they say they're going to do, which is, is as I say, very little.
0: Mm.
1: Thinking back, say obviously, podcast audience and whatnot will be kind of university students, younger people, um, to say the effects of the pandemic and say maybe the the benefits and, and the costs of it. So you ended up with the same situation where we've kind of gone in, in into lockdown to kind of. A the health and well being of generally older yeah. people, and the kind of economic effects have been large increases in asset prices, which have generally been held again by older people, and, and the cost of the pandemic, to say when it was initially the kind of uh, loss of casual employment, um, disruption of mm-hmm. education, and then the taking on a quite a large amount of debt that will be repaid. Is kind of the the costs have been borne a lot by younger people, and the benefits held by by generally. Older demographics. I just I, again. I, I, yeah. Do you agree with that? Uh, that really, uh, and also bit, that yeah. is like, yeah. it, it, is that necessarily a problem in terms of say kind of intergenerational kind of equity to a certain extent? Or well, so yeah. So I mean, uh, some some of the economic effects remain
2: to, remain to be seen. So um, uh, so for example, uh, while um, yeah, while we have seen asset prices rising, of course, uh, we're also seeing. Uh, inflation and therefore negative uh, negative real interest rates, which uh, tends mostly to affect holders of government debt or mostly again uh, uh, in the uh, retired age group or or near retirement, so the economic effects are all, all over the place, and of course most of the debt was taken on uh, took the form of transfers to uh, to younger workers um, so um, so that so, so the economic effects are are kind of all over the place. The real issue i think um, uh the real issue really should know, ought to be costs and benefits in a non um uh, cost and benefits in in uh you know in across the community as a whole and you know, my view is certainly that uh, uh that the uh, the benefits of the lockdown greatly exceeded the costs uh, you know what would what would have happened you know, the counterfactual uh, on the one hand, we, we the counterfactual seems pretty awful. Uh, on the other hand, um, on the other hand, the alleged economic effects and secondary effects of the uh, don't seem to have been nearly as large as as people said. So, for example, early on, some of my economist colleagues were saying uh, the savings in lives from the pandemic would be offset by increase in suicides, but in fact, you know, suicide rates fell. So. Although the lockdown wasn't much fun, it's not—it's not at all obvious that not all obvious that the effects were, uh, uh, the effects were nearly as negative as 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 was claimed. And I think we're now very clearly at a point where even trivial, even trivial, or sensible requirements like vaccine mandates, masks, and so forth are being abandoned, even though we're going to lose probably, you know, I would guess we're looking probably a hundred thousand lives lost unless something changes and the pandemic, you know, depending on how soon we come up with a better pandemic, probably, let's say, fifteen to 20,000 this year, and no reason to expect that's going to decline any time in the future. So I certainly think we've, uh, without much policy debate, drastically screwed up our response to the, the pandemic in the last six months or so.
3: Do you think that prior to these last six months, um our policy response to the pandemic was sufficient, or do you think that it was kind of a blunt instrument
2: well, it was basically right um, i mean I mean there's all sorts of of course yeah, stuff ups along the way uh but yeah I mean basically we should have stuck with vaccine mandates we should have stuck with masks um, we should have kept lockdowns as an option uh they probably yeah, i mean partly of course uh what we saw was uh Unilateral policy change at the same time as Omicron undermined. Yeah, Omicron certainly changed the balance of of policy in the sense that uh, policies of elimination became a lot more difficult to sustain than they had been had been prior to that. But I mean, looking at the policy process, that policy process was well underway before Omicron came and was clearly uh, clearly mistaken that if we if we hadn't if we'd if we'd continued with Delta, I think we would have had catastrophic results uh, and there's no reason there's no reason to think we won't get something which combines the worst features of omicron and delta yeah. at a time when effectively we've undermined any kind of public confidence in policy responses
3: so that's on the health front but what about say like the economic response like the stimulus by the government and
2: well, so well, clearly, in broad terms, it, it worked. I mean, it was the right yeah. policy. I mean, you can you can go back, you can certainly go back again and look at the implementation and say, well, yeah, a bunch of people who didn't need money got it. Uh, there were particular pieces of cultural war stuff. Primarily, the universities being the victim. That you know, the government specifically picked on universities and said you're not going to get any help. Uh, yeah, which of course, a number of jobs lost there. Uh, exceeds any reasonable estimate of how much could be lost by climate action uh, and so yeah but that, that that's a sort of second order uh, kind of story broadly speaking we got you know, the, the amount of stimulus was um, was about right um, we came out of it with very little loss of loss of output beyond very little permanent loss of output essentially essentially a bunch of services that weren't supplied during the pandemic you know, restaurant meals that weren't cooked and eaten and so forth. Uh, but there was no longer-term knock-on effect so that as soon as the lockdowns ended, everything, all those things went back to normal. Um, you know, the effects... The effects on sectors like tourism were really pretty much a wash. I mean, all... yeah, you know, uh, We had the Queensland border closed, so people in Queensland took their holidays in Queensland,
0: uh,
2: replacing people from New South Wales and overseas yeah even even in the height of the lockdown getting a booking on the sunshine coast was uh, just as just <laughs> as difficult as it always was yeah. so yeah so econ- economically i think uh, economically uh, we got it right look at the us you know probably they're overstimulated but it's kind of un- funny things happening in the labor market in the us that just i think you know, it's very difficult to work out what's going on because there's just so many pathologies in terms of things like the opioid epidemic and, and things of that kind that working out what's happening to the US—I think is very difficult.
1: Okay. So just say we'll end now, yep. say with our, uh, our last question, which we've yep. decided to go is to uh, kind of just say, um, one book you think our listeners um, should read and why <laughs> uh, oh, to end on you put you on the spot with a, um, put you on the spot with a heavy question. A conflict of interest. Uh, yeah. Well, can't, it can't be your own. That's no, come so. Um,
2: so, uh, if you yeah, if you want it, if you want what I think will be the uh, uh, the hot economics book of the thing, it, it'll be Blanchard's uh, fiscal policy in a low interest rate environment. Heavy going, but um, <laughs> uh, if you want a popular book, mine are the best. Okay, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. okay. Thank, thank you very
0: much. John so, John Quiggin, thank you for joining us. Mm. Uh, tune you. in, guys, in future. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pillar Talk. Pillow Talk is published by Statecraft, the publications branch of the University of Queensland, Politics, Philosophy and Economic Society. It is co-produced by Will Splatt and co-produced and edited by me, Tom Watson. Our music was created by Isaac Haynes.